So he wrote his essay in Latin, read it aloud to this audience at Cambridge, won the prize, and then having received his degree, set off to make his way in the world, riding the horse that he owned from Cambridge to London. Halfway there, as he was about to cross the River Lee, he said the thought came to him that if the things he'd written in his essay were true, and he knew they were true, somebody should do something about it. He sat down by the side of the road, had this thought, got back on his horse, and he spent the remaining 61 years of his life working first to end slavery in the British Empire and then in the rest of the rest of the world. And it was he who assembled that committee of 12 people who met uh, two years later in the Quaker bookstore in London. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Today's guest, Adam Hochschild, wrote 10 books. One of his earlier books, Bury the Chains, Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free and Empire Slaves, is the one that has changed my approach to sustainability. My hopes, my expectations, my role models, my strategies, a lot. He teaches narrative writing at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley. We'll talk about the book's content, but first about the book. It won the LA Times Book Prize, the Penn USA Literary Award, the Gold Medal of the California Book Awards, and was a finalist for the National Book Award. Another of his books that I've heard a lot about and expect to read at some point is King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa, and To End All Wars, a story of loyalty and rebellion, 1914 to 1918. Both were finalists for the National Book Critics Circle Award. I almost don't want to write because it's so well-written that I, I feel like I can't catch up to it, but it still inspires me more than holds me back. Earlier in his career, he was a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. He was a commentator on National Public Radio's All Things Considered, and he co-founded, edited, and wrote for Mother Jones Magazine. In fact, since recording this episode, I commented on my podcast about a recent story he wrote in Mother Jones. The backstory is that I had written about how people calling to defund the police They have the opportunity to act, but they want to show how others could do better than the police. Next thing I know, I stumble onto an article that Adam wrote about people helping students in schools where police have increasingly been placed. But the people doing non-police work, replacing what police have been doing, they're getting better results than the police, which makes a lot of sense because the police aren't really in the business of helping students. Back to Adam. His articles have been published in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, New York Times Magazine, and elsewhere. In 2009, he received the Theodore Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson Award from the American Historical Association. In 2014, he was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Many of his stories recount people writing unfair situations. You'll hear in this conversation how the British abolitionists of the late 1700s and early 1800s took on and overcame the most profitable industries, that is slavery, funding the largest empire the world had ever seen, that is Britain. All the excuses we hear today applied then. If we don't, the French and Spanish will. I mean, today it would be China and Russia. The Africans benefit from it. It's impossible to change even if you want to. Are you crazy? But the big one is what one person does doesn't matter. Everyone believed that then. Yet they looked across the ocean. They saw people suffering from a system they participated in and decided that they could not participate anymore. On the contrary, they made it their life missions to end that trade. What I have done, or I feel I'm doing, regarding today's pollution. Few people know this story. 
Those who do usually know William Wilberforce's name most. Adam writes about the community most of all, also Wilberforce, but Thomas Clarkson in particular as the main character in force. For more detail, listen. Beyond the details, I hope you'll see the historical precedence for people with less resources than you taking on an industry as strong as the one you want to take on and succeeding. Few things have inspired me more than the story in Adam Hochschild's Bury the Chains. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spoda. I'm here with Adam Hochschild. Adam, how are you doing? Good. Good. Or as good as one can be in the midst of pandemic and Trump and everything else, but uh, plus fires in California where I live, but still on the whole, I'm doing good. Suddenly got heavy really quick there, although that's the world that we live in these days. That's true. The most times when I have an author, it's because their publicist contacted me and said, oh, you should have this person on. And I love that. In your case, I've barely started your book, but it's because the opening pages of one of your many books, Bear the Chains, was just enthralling and overlaps with my work and I believe what a lot of people would like in their lives incredibly. And I couldn't wait. It's a long book. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you fast. And it turned out that we had a mutual friend who put us in touch. We spoke yesterday. And what I found in your book, one of the things that I found in your book so compelling and so engaging, you pointed out is not just that book, but a lot of what you do. I wonder if you could tell me again, what you told me, I mean, what I loved was I'm reading about the British slave trade and people, I'm sorry, the British abolition movement, I should say, and people who could have enjoyed the fruits of it and chose not to. And up until now, I generally think of acting in stewardship as something we're going to suffer. And if we don't act as, you know, as the sufferers, we better help ourselves. And it didn't occur to me that there are people in history who have been, I think where most Americans are with regard to environmental behavior, we're much more polluting than we are feeling the effects of the pollution. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world, on the other hand, is feeling the effects a lot more. Right. And they aren't nearly polluting as much. Right. And so as much as I've had Mandela and Gandhi and King as, as role models, suddenly Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, John Newton, make a lot more sense as role models, as people who could have continued living as everyone around them did. Why not? And there's all sorts of arguments of the economy and tradition and the law, and it's easier to just keep doing what you're doing. And they didn't. And that's what I found. Oh my God, these are role, the role models of, I've been looking for. And then you say, it's not just them. I've been talking too much. Can you tell me what you said yesterday when I told you that? And you, you told me it's not just those books, the, the characters in that book. Well, I think what attracts me as a writer are times and places in history where I see people fighting for justice, fighting to make a better world in one way or another. And I think that in my case very much has to do with my having been a child of the 1960s. That was the decade in which I came of age. And because of various experiences I had, became very aware of the injustices in the world around me. I spent a summer when I was in college working on an anti-apartheid newspaper in South Africa, got to know people who had been uh, in prison for their beliefs and subsequently went to prison. One of them was later hanged. Then came back to the United States, and my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I were civil rights workers in Mississippi 
in the summer of 1964. That was a time when uh, a thousand volunteers from uh, elsewhere in the country went to Mississippi to try to register voters and help in, in other ways. So something about that decade, which also involved the Vietnam War, I was deeply involved in the movement against the war, made me interested in times and places when I started writing history when people were involved in similar struggles. And, you know, we started off talking about the British anti-slavery movement. What fascinates me about that movement, which is much too little known about in this country, because it really preceded the large abolition movement in the United States, was that this was the first moment in history, at least the first that I know of, where a large number of people in one country became deeply outraged and remained outraged for decades about the plight of other people of another color in another part of the world. We don't see that very often. And so I thought there was an interesting story to be told by looking at the first time that happened on a large scale. And that's the British abolition movement, which began and caught on like fire starting in the late uh, 1780s in London. And we can sort of talk about that process if you want to. Yeah, when you say caught on like wildfire, it still took, it wasn't until 1807 that the first, the trade was illegalized or made illegal. And it wasn't until the 1830s when slavery in the British Empire came to an end. Uh, That's true. I think systems like uh, slavery, discrimination, you know, Jim Crow, all kinds of other things, they don't get uprooted easily. But Slavery in the British Empire did come to an end a full quarter century before it did in the United States, and it wouldn't have happened without this extraordinary movement in England itself and without large-scale slave revolts in the Caribbean, where Britain's slave colonies were, which is something we didn't have on that kind of scale in the American South. I think of the – William Wilberforce was in the House of Commons. And he proposed year after year after year after year proposals to stop the slave trade as a precursor to stopping slavery. And he got laughed at. He got all the excuses, all the reasons to sustain the slave trade sound a lot like the reasons to sustain fossil fuels and and Mm -hmm. actually on an individual level, not just why to sustain industries, but also why people say, that's why I want to keep flying. That's why I want to keep Mm -hmm. doing what, what I do. And I think of what hit me, what made it finally actually get through in 1807, I, you're going to know the details better than I do, was when popular opinion, but also popular behavior changed. Mm-hmm. That just trying to pass the laws, especially when there's huge resources trying to keep things the way they are. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people say, well, there should be a law. We should you know, tax this and we should make that illegal and we should ban that. Yeah. And trying to get a law passed without popular support, I think is pretty tough, especially when There's a lot of money to be made not doing that. Absolutely. I mean, this was the real power of this movement, that it put pressure on the the government. But let's go back and talk about how it started. Because the fascinating thing for me about this movement was that it caught fire in a country where almost everybody took slavery for granted. If you'd stood up on a street corner in London and 
1785 and said uh, there's something immoral about slavery and it should be outlawed, you know, nine out of 10 people would have laughed at you. And the 10th might have said, well, you may have something there, but where would we get the sugar for our tea? And you'll never get rid of slavery. The Romans had slavery. The Greeks have slavery. You know, look at all our the other countries in Europe. They've got slave colonies in the Caribbean and elsewhere as well. Two years later, this remarkable movement took birth. And it was born in a way that I think has a lesson for us today because it was a coalition. It was a coalition of, now this sounds extremely insignificant today, but at that time, it was terribly important. It was a coalition from people of different religious sects working together for a secular end. I mean, roll the clock back and look at England in the 18th century. You had to be an Anglican in order to serve in the army, get elected to parliament, have any kind of post in the civil service, and so forth. People of other religious denominations couldn't do this. Only the Anglicans counted in political life, so to speak. But the one religious sect in Britain that had taken a firm stand against slavery for several decades was the Quakers. However, there were only 20,000 of them. And people wrote them off as a fringe group because they wore those funny big black hats. They said thee and thou. They wouldn't use the names of the days of the week, you know, because these derived from Roman and pagan gods rather than uh, from the Bible. If they were addressing a peer, they wouldn't say my Lord because there's only one Lord and so forth. So the Quakers were thought of as extremely marginal. But they were the only sect that had a principled, strong stand against slavery and had for decades. So the genius of this organization, I think, and this was a little committee, started off with 12 people who met in a Quaker bookstore and printing shop in London, May 22nd, 1787, same time that the Constitutional Convention was going on here in Philadelphia. And it was a group that consisted of both Anglicans and Quakers. The Anglicans knew the Quakers are the people who've got the troops. They've got this network of 20,000 people around the country who are committed to this, this issue. The Quakers knew the Anglicans had connections in Parliament. And because the Quakers didn't want to abandon these principles of their religion about what you said and how you spoke of the days of the week and how you addressed a peer, they had an Anglican member of the group who signed all the letters. So. This coalition was tremendously important, and they began, they also, the the key figure in the movement, I think, was not William Wilberforce, who's the guy who traditionally gets all the credit, but the traveling organizer for this committee, a remarkable man named Thomas Clarkson, who I think was one of the great organizers in history. And here's how he got drawn into this movement. He had been a divinity student at Cambridge University in the 1780s. And the big thing at Oxford and Cambridge, the most prestigious thing that a student there could could win, was winning the annual Latin essay or Latin poetry prize. If you win the Latin essay or Latin poetry contest at Oxford or Cambridge, it was an honor that people remembered for the rest of your life. So 
Thomas Clarkson entered the Latin essay contest at Cambridge. And as it happened, Cambridge had an unusual vice chancellor, the top dog at a British university, that's what they're called that year, who wanted to draw some attention to the issue of slavery. So he made the question of the morality of slavery the question to be addressed in the annual Latin essay contest. Thomas Clarkson, Divendi student, had no interest in slavery to begin with. He just wanted to win this very prestigious prize. But he was sort of a born investigative reporter. He read everything he could find about slavery, eyewitness accounts of it in the Caribbean. He discovered that a friend of his family's was in the shipping business and had ships that transported slaves, looked at those records, and he was absolutely horrified at what he found. He enlisted his brother to help him doing the research. His brother later also became a prominent abolitionist. And he writes very movingly in his memoirs about how he left a candle burning all night long in his room in case some thought would come to him that would be useful in this Latin essay and that he could write it down. So he wrote his essay in Latin, read it aloud to this audience at Cambridge, won the prize, and then having received his degree, set off to make his way in the world, riding the horse that he owned from Cambridge to London. And halfway there, uh, as he was about to cross the River Lee, he said, the thought came to him that if the things he'd written in his essay were true, and he knew they were true, somebody should do something about it. And he sat down by the side of the road, had this thought, got back on his horse, and he spent the remaining 61 years of his life working first to end slavery in the British Empire and then in the rest of the rest of the world. And it was he who assembled that committee of 12 people who met uh, two years later in the Quaker bookstore in London. Then he became the committee's traveling organizer and set off on a five-month horseback ride around southern England and Wales, setting up local committees in towns and cities everywhere that would be in touch with that central committee in London. Now, this is the way political organizations normally work today, right? You have the headquarters of the ACLU or the NAACP or whatever uh, in New York, Washington, wherever it is, and branches around the country. But it was a very unusual thing for that time. It was kind of a new way of organizing something. And it was all outside parliament. And you can sort of trace the moment when this movement caught fire. It was about six months after that first meeting. So we're talking early 1788. Now, there were no opinion polls in those days, but there was one very good measure of what issues people were concerned about, because the people who had a vested interest in knowing that were the proprietors of London's debating societies, where it was a big entertainment, live entertainment. You could come and pay sixpence and then watch two people debate something whether it was should the monarchy be abolished or should women be forbidden from wearing large hats in the theater or, you know, various other topics. And only very rarely had slavery or the slave trade been the subject of these debates. And there were dozens of these debating societies in London and people have tabulated what the topics were that were discussed there. 
Suddenly, the month of February 1788, half the debates in London had to do with slavery. That's the moment that the movement caught fire. A couple of years later, 400,000 people signed petitions to the British Parliament asking it to end the slave trade. That was more people than were then qualified to vote in Britain, because only about 5% of the population, all men, could vote at that time. So this movement somehow caught the public imagination. And it's just fascinating to me to see how that happened, because they developed every kind of tool that we use for political organizing today and that we have to keep on using and developing new tools if we're going to solve the enormous challenges of facing us today, you know, global warming being the, the paramount one, I think. They developed the first logo ever developed for a political organization. It's an image of a kneeling slave in chains looking upward, surrounded by the legend, a legend that says, am I not a man and a brother? Later. When women got into the act, they developed their own logo, kneeling woman slave in chains with the legend, am I not a woman and a sister? And this appeared, coat buttons, hat pins, jewelry, the stamps used to stamp sealing wax on letters, uh, everywhere. And, and it became a way of people saying to each other, I'm part of this movement. Are you? The movement developed the first widely reproduced political poster, and you've seen it. It's that image, it's a sort of top-down view of a slave ship that shows the bodies packed like sardines next to each other. And it's on book covers and you know, record album covers and so forth. Uh, it's a very familiar image today. It was created by one of the local committees that Thomas Clarkson set up in his travels around England in the port of Plymouth. And the diagram, a top-down view of the slave ship, is based on a particular ship called the Brooks of Liverpool. And it's actually rather conservatively drawn because it shows fewer slaves packed into that ship than we know the ship actually carried on some of its voyages from the records available. So this was a powerful tool, this poster. It was reproduced in thousands of copies all over, and they put it up in pubs all over England. They sent a batch of copies uh, to their abolitionist friend, uh, Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia. They sent a batch of copies to uh, another abolitionist friend, the Marquis de Lafayette in Paris. Lafayette and his people wondered, you know, this, this image was tremendously powerful in a day before photography. People had never seen a graphic representation of bodies packed into a slave ship. Lafayette and his people wondered about should they show it to King Louis XVI, and then finally they decided not to because it was known that the king had a weak heart and it was afraid that the power of the image would overwhelm him. So, you know, these were all tools that they developed. And I think, in a way, the most significant tool that came out of the movement was the consumer boycott. Uh, about five years after the uh, movement started, people were getting very impatient that Parliament had not yet acted on this crucial issue. And an estimated 300,000 people in Britain stopped eating slave-grown sugar. This was one of the principal products, in fact, the principal product 
of the British uh, slave colonies in the Caribbean. And a consumer boycott is a tool that we still use today. And it's a one of many ways in which ordinary people can put pressure on governments and corporations to change their ways. When I read this, I was thinking it was like a, like a homecoming of finding people who had done what it seems necessary, but we're not really so much doing yet to have role models who succeeded at something is, did they have role models? I mean, if they're religious, I would guess Jesus, but I don't know if that's a good that's a good question. I don't think they did have role models because nothing quite like this had happened in history before. There were subsequent movements who spoke of them as role models. For example, the abolitionists in the United States were following what these folks in Britain were doing very carefully and when the crucial vote came before the British Parliament this was abolishing not just the slave trade, but slavery itself in the British Empire. And they argued over it for months in the summer of 1833. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison, the leading American abolitionist, came to Britain and hung out in coffee shops with these guys, listening to them debate and tried to figure out how he could take their tactics back to the United States. And then later on in the 19th century and early 20th, when the movement to expose some of the atrocities of colonialism in Africa was strong in Britain, they often spoke about the abolitionists as their role model. But I think these folks were the first. I don't think they had a, a particular movement they could talk to. That, to me, is what, one of the things that's so exciting about it. Nobody had ever really done something like that before. For you on a personal level, <laughs> I felt like you wrote the book for me. I felt like you wrote the book for this. And but now I'm thinking you wrote the book, not just for this, for stewardship, for environmental sustainability, but for people seeking justice broadly. Am I right that you weren't, did you have in mind environmental ideas when you were writing it? Not particularly. I just thought having written in, uh, before and after about other struggles for justice in different areas of the world and times in history entirely, I just love telling that kind of story, and I love to see people apply it to wherever it fits. One thing that surprised me and delighted me was to see this get applied to environmental movements. I, you know, you learn who's reading a book by who invites you to come and speak about it. And this book was published uh, about 15 years ago. And the first uh, five or six years after it appeared, you know, the place that would ask me to come and, and talk about it, and I have a slideshow of images from the time and so forth that I give, they were uh, African history classes, uh, black studies classes, uh, groups concerned with African-American or African history or history of slavery or whatever. The last half dozen times I've been asked to speak about it, it's been, with only one exception, groups working on global warming. Uh, Sierra Club, 350.org, and so forth. And I love that, that they see here's a bunch of people more than 200 years ago who changed how the world thought about something basic. And that's what we need to do, and we have very little time to do it in today about the problem of, of global warming. The book was even reviewed in academic journal for climate scientists. And the, the, the guy wrote in the review said, you may wonder 
why I'm reviewing in our journal a, a book about the 18th century British anti-slavery movement, but here's why. We have to learn from what these people did. So I'm delighted to see it applied that way because I do think the, the problem of climate change, it is the big thing facing us today. When you first started talking about the group meeting, I felt there was a tone of you saying, here's what you have to do. Make sure you have a, a diversity of inputs. I mean, because we don't have just one church we have to follow now, but you have to bring in different people with different views and, and get them together. And I've only started your book, but I have a feeling it's going to read almost like, an, not an instruction book, but like um, a case study that's worth following. Although I just can't get past how much it changed. The, you pointed this out in the first couple of pages of the book that and I have to say, I speak about the environment, not just climate change, because I think of plastic and mercury and, and deforestation and extinctions. Yes. Oh, absolutely. What we're doing to the oceans. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's generally presented, if you don't act, you're going to suffer. That we are on the receiving end of the brutality of climate change and all these things. That we're going to get the, I don't want to talk about the atrocities, because I, but we're going to suffer. And that implies there have been many movements where the people who are the ones who are suffering were the ones who figured out a way in nonviolent civil disobedience. They'll say, yes, arrest me and look at how you feel when you do this law. Even you don't like this happening, but that's the law you created. But we as Americans, as Westerners, I mean, Europeans, probably a lot of China, a lot of us, that those of us who are making the most effect, who are polluting the most, are feeling it the least. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. And so to say we're suffering, it drew me. Of course, I'm, despite what I found out about this abolition movement, I expect that Gandhi and, and King and Mandela will remain role models for me. Right. But I'm not, there's a certain difference between, I'm not on the side of, I wasn't the, a black in South Africa. I wasn't a black in, in Jim Crow South mm-hmm. in the environmental world. I'm, I am suffering. There's a bit of pollution in my world, but not like Indonesia and, and the Philippines and soon it'll get me. And so to have a role model of someone, when I see the, so I've gone online and looked up a whole bunch of stuff online and I see the images of, of Liverpool and Bristol in the late 18th century, sorry, in the late 1700s, in the early 1800s. And boy, do they look pretty comfortable. And that's us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're absolutely right, Josh. Absolutely. And to have a role model who could have said, yep, let's go for it. Why not? Whatever's going on over there in Jamaica and Cuba and whatever. I don't know. The company says it's okay. They say that they, they said they're better off in America than Africa. They want to go there. If we don't do it, the, the French will. So we might as well keep doing it. And they said, no, I'm not going to benefit from someone else suffering. And the boycott that you talked about, I presume could, actually, I don't know. I'll put that as a question. Did they themselves personally stop benefiting from slavery before they asked others to? Was that a necessary first step? You know, it's a complicated question, the boycott, because there is not good data on it. That estimate of 300,000 people in Britain ceasing to eat sugar comes from one person. You know, there weren't kind of sociological surveys about this kind of thing. then. And there are pamphlets and so forth about the boycott. And in a sense, yeah, ceasing to eat sugar was ceasing to benefit from one of the things having to do with slavery. You know, slaves in in the British West Indies produced other crops as well. And people sometimes ate sugar produced in India, thinking they were striking a blow against slavery without really realizing that, you know, 
bonded peasant laborers in India were in conditions, you know, not unlike though that of slavery. But nonetheless, it was a matter of people saying, I'm willing to sacrifice something in order to create some pressure on my government. The boycott ultimately failed because uh, just a year after it began, Britain and France went to war, one of these endless repeated wars between the two countries that happened you know, throughout the 18th centuries. And this was the very long war that uh, really only landed ended at the Battle of Waterloo many years later. And of course, wartime is seldom good for progressive movements of any kind. So the boycott sort of got swallowed up uh, by that. But nonetheless, it put a technique on the table, which other people in other times have been able to use uh, successfully. And I think there are times when uh, strategically we, we've got to use it today. You know, people, for instance, right now, they're, they're at a number of different colleges and universities. They're alumni saying, I'm not going to give to dear old state or whatever the, the college was until they agree to divest their endowment from everything to do with fossil fuels. You know, similar boycotts and so on, I think, had a great deal to do with creating the pressure on South Africa to abandon apartheid. Actually, I spent quite a bit of time in South Africa during the apartheid years and wrote a book on the country. And I can really testify that, that the boycotts had an effect there. So it remains a powerful tool today. I'm curious about the individual behavior of those 12 and the, the, those who followed. I think it would be really difficult if they. Well, I guess in Britain, there weren't a whole lot of slaves. It seemed like they were treated more like pets. The British would treat Africans more like kind of pets or showing off their wealth because the slavery wasn't really there. They didn't have the slave plantations there. Right. There there was no slavery in Britain itself. And that had been decided by court decisions some years before all this happened. But there were only a tiny number of people of African descent in Britain maybe no more than five or 6,000, who often were slaves who had been brought back to Britain by people who'd owned uh, West Indian plantations or something and then set free once they, they got back there or were freed by this court decision. So, you know, most people in England had probably never even seen a black person. But your question about the boycott and the relationship of the 12 people and the committee to the boycott, actually the boycott was not officially endorsed by the committee. One of the things about this committee was that it spanned uh, quite a spectrum of politics. And William Wilberforce, who was the then young member of parliament who led the anti-slavery forces in the House of Commons, was a very conservative guy who, although he took a strong moral stance against slavery, was an extreme right-winger on every conceivable other issue. Uh, the position of women, labor unions, which he thought were the greatest threat there was to Britain, uh, everything else imaginable. And he was completely opposed to the idea of a boycott. So the committee never endorsed the boycott. It was something that kind of erupted spontaneously outside the committee, and one of the significant things about the boycott was, who was it who made the decision uh, what food to buy for each household? It was the women. And uh, I think it's no accident that 
the year after the sugar boycott began was the publication of Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, book of Vindication of the Rights of Women. And, you know, some years after that, there began to be women's anti-slavery societies in Britain. It was inconceivable that men and women could be together in the same uh, organization. Women's anti-slavery societies, which almost always were more radical than those of the men. They pushed for an immediate end to slavery rather than doing it in stages, which the male anti-slavery societies tended to back. So the boycott was actually not started by the committee, although the more radical members of the committee, like Thomas Clarkson and like most of the Quakers, thoroughly endorsed it. And Clarkson had a friend named Thomas Allen who stopped uh, eating sugar at this point when the, when the boycott began in the early 1790s and had his first spoonful of sugar again only about 40 years later when uh, British slavery finally came to an end. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Now, I have to share a personal thing that when I was in college, we, I stopped drinking. I, I don't remember if it was Coca-Cola or Pepsi, but I stopped drinking one of them because they were doing business with South Africa. And we were boycotting these, these places. And years later, no one ever said, all right, you can start drinking it again. And at some point, I remember seeing Mandela being president and thinking, I guess the boycott is over. And when you said I had the first taste of sugar, I thought, and then I thought to myself, I remember why I stopped drinking it, but I don't remember why I started before. And I actually haven't had any since. So I, that. Well, you're, you're probably better off and your yeah. teeth are better off for not drinking Coca-Cola. Ever since. And yeah, it's funny. It's the parallels. I mean, with sugar being such, the, such a main ingredient, there's another angle that I think is the resistance that they faced. It seemed mm-hmm. slavery had been around for thousands of years and all these different cultures. And there was so much economic benefit. There'd probably be ruin. And if they didn't, if Britain didn't do it, France would. And this all sounds exactly like what I hear today. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar. There's something that I feel like the corporation, today we talk about how the corporation, if it, it's like a, a legal person. And if we analyze that person, it would be a psychopath. And <laughs> what, I, yeah. what I think is the case, and I'm not sure if you know this, especially, I don't know if you've read Industrial Strength Denial or uh, what's the other big one? Well, anyway, talking about how corporations are, are putting up a kind of smokescreen and saying it's okay. And I think that at the time, this was around when corporations were developing and forming. And I think the corporation that we know of today as, as shielding the shareholders, shielding the buyers mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the consequences of their actions Am I right that it took a big leap forward at this forward? I mean, that it took a big step forward in terms of creating that legal entity that would separate the people benefiting from its actions from the harm in this case that was happening? Uh, I'm not sure that the 
significance of the corporation as a sort of legal entity in a basic way is any different from things were how things were at that time. There certainly were corporations, private businesses, which were deeply involved in one way or another in the slave trade or the slavery itself. There were these large plantations in the British West Indies that, you know, might have, you know, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 enslaved people working on them. They made lots of money. There were the firms that operated ships that transported captive Africans across the Atlantic. And one of the significant things about the movement starting in Britain is that Britain dominated the Atlantic slave trade. In the 18th century, British ships carried half the captive Africans taken across the Atlantic from east to west because they delivered these folks in chains, not just to Britain's colonies, but to French colonies, Spanish colonies, Portuguese colonies, the American South uh, before and after uh, it became independent. So Britain had a huge position in this this, uh, Atlantic slave trade. And that was where much of the resistance came from because, you know, the Liverpool shipping industry was extremely powerful. And then there was the argument that uh, you mentioned that if we abandon this business, well, the French will get all the business. And that, of course, is similar to the kinds of arguments that are made today. You know, well, if we don't suck all that oil out of the earth, you know, the Russians or the Chinese or somebody else is going to come along and, and do it. And that was a powerful argument, but it was it ended up being eliminated because Britain and France went to war. The war effectively, because the British Navy was so powerful, the war effectively stopped French ships from taking part in the slave trade in a, in a major way. And then one of the British abolitionists who was a very shrewd maritime lawyer realized something that uh, most people didn't, which was that British ships, even though they were at war with France, were still delivering slaves to French colonies. Often they would run up the flag of the United States or some other country, so they were officially sailing under somebody else's flag, but they were delivering slaves to French colonies. So because Britain was at war with France, they were able to get a bill through Parliament saying no slaves should be delivered to uh, any other country's uh, colonies. That cut off a lot of the trade right there. And then there was a change of prime minister, and they were able to get a bill abolishing the right of British ships to carry slaves anywhere through Parliament in 1807. The abolitionists were under the mistaken impression that this would end slavery itself very soon. The reason being that in the West Indies, unlike in the United States, in the West Indies, the death rate among slaves was so high that there had to be a constant replenishment of new shiploads of these chained captives arriving from Africa in order to keep the system going. And of course, as soon as that was stopped, then the plantation owners in the West Indies began treating their slaves better, having rudimentary medical facilities, and so forth. Not out of the kindness of their hearts, but because they wanted the slave population to reproduce and grow 
as it had already been doing for many years in the much more temperate climate in the American South. I think I read that after the 1807 bill passed, that the British influence led Portugal, Sweden, France, Spain, the Netherlands also to ban slave trade. I'm not sure if, if it actually banned it yet, but I think instead of leading them into more slavery, once they switched, they actually led them the other way, that it didn't happen that they filled in the gaps, that they were able to use what they did to influence them to follow. It did, but it also did because Britain, for its own economic reasons, if they couldn't import slaves to their colonies, they didn't want anybody else doing it. And the Royal Navy was the one that policed that ban as the other countries put the ban into effect. And so the Royal Navy patrolled the world's oceans from 1807 on, uh, trying to prevent any kind of transatlantic uh, slave tracking. Traffic not completely effectively because it still happened, but it it uh, cut it way 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 down. This fills in a gap that I didn't understand. Why would the others stop? So Britain, once Britain stopped, they had they now had a practical motivation to stop the others as well. They they weren't just leading right. out of some moral sense of obligation or duty or whatever. That may have been there. I don't, I don't know, but they also didn't want it to happen. So they because I'm also thinking if the U S right now the U S we are leading in the environment toward more pollution. If we could lead the other way, and if we did, mm-hmm. it's not just that the others, China, okay, so let's say, let's say China and, and Russia do want to drill where we don't. Will we have the, we'll have the incentive then to get them to ban as well. Yeah, I think it's, it's hard making an analogy to the present uh, situation, but I think you can't even begin to have influence over the rest of the world unless you clean up your own act. And I I think it would have a a tremendous impact if the United States, you know, rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement, insisted on its going farther, becoming more drastic. And, uh, you know, other countries would would follow. Possibly there would be ways of, of putting pressure on them to do so. But I just think the to have the most powerful country in the world, which in many ways Britain was at that time, set an example is a is an impressive thing and a powerful thing. Yeah, you say you can't begin to have an influence if you don't act yourself. I wish that we were not right. having an influence, but I think we're having an influence negative. I mean, if if positive Absolutely. is more conservation and sustaining Earth's ability to sustain life in human society, we are strongly influencing sadly, the direction I'd like to go the other way. Absolutely. Totally. I wanted to talk to you about Belgium and your other books. And I wonder if we could have another conversation where we go into other things because, and also I I expect that as I get further into your book, then I'm going to want to ask you more and more questions. Okay. Sure. I would love to have you back. Merchants of Doubt was the book that I couldn't remember. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, actually, I, I hear very, my son, who's an environmental activist, is a big enthusiast for that book. And uh, I have seen the movie. I haven't read the book, but I, I know the thesis and I think it's, it's terrific. Yeah. And this other book, uh, your son might like Industrial Strength Denial, which traces... Yeah, I bet he knows about it. Okay. It talks about how the, the tactics and strategies of denial in, say, climate change. You know, oh, we don't really know. We got to do more research. But don't, don't act yet. Mm-hmm. That came from the people who said it about cigarettes, and that came from the people who said it about leaded gasoline and so yes. forth. And right. that came, it, the, she traces it back to slavery, the, to this period in, in England. So, this corporate, what I'm realizing is that the system has evolved. I, 
Well, I'll get into that in a future in a future one. I really appreciate this, and I, yeah, I just can't help but say that getting role models for something that mm-hmm. right now it's everyone's role model. They walk into Starbucks, they say, "Should I get the the plastic cup?" Well, everyone around me is. I guess it's okay, and that that ends up being our role models is people who are just not really caring so much, and to say that we're not blazing a trail, that we're not tilting at windmills, that we're doing something that's been done. See, I was thinking once, and now I have to have you on again because it's not just once, it's many times. Good. Okay, well, read some of the other books, and I will happily come back and talk about them. Adam Hochschild, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Josh. It was a pleasure. Read Bury the Chains. Watch a movie like The Story of Plastic to see the suffering our system causes. Read Industrial Strength Denial to see the historical precedence of it. If you want meaning and purpose in your life, you can do today what they did then. What would you rather do? What would you rather your gravestone say? Whatever holds you back applied to them more, yet they did it. We can too. If you're not sure specifically what to do, contact me. There's plenty to do. There is a legacy to be had. Service to others rewards like nothing. Since recording this episode, I finished reading his book. He covered a lot of its points in this conversation, but you'll be glad you read the book for the greater depth and the more comprehensive coverage, especially if you want to help decrease the world's pollution and connect to your fellow living creatures, especially humans. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.